This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley Rubric to A Few Good Men from 1992, directed by Rob Reiner, written by Aaron Sorkin, starring Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, Kevin Bacon, Kevin Pollack, Kiefer Sutherland, and Jack Nicholson. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we will be discussing our second entry in our Military Courtroom Drama Month, The Kane Mutiny from 1954, directed by Edward Dimitrik, written by Stanley Roberts and Michael Blankfort, starring Humphrey Bogart, Jose Ferrer, Lee Marvin, and Fred McMurray. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at gmodepodcast. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. So, Dad, let's turn our attention then to A Few Good Men. What is your relationship to this movie? I went and saw this movie in theaters with your mother back when it was released. At that time, I thought it was one of the best films I had seen in a long time. You and I are very prone to liking movies that particularly are plays or that are from theater or adapted that way. And... I think a lot of it has to do with dialogue. There may not be a better current writer of dialogue than Aaron Sorkin. I know. When it came time to do quotes, I mean, you, the just the, the ones that they considered good quotes on IMDb, you might as well have just put the entire screenplay up because it took 15 pages. I had a hard time narrowing it down. I eventually just kind of left some of the let's say, put-downs on the cutting room floor, and I went with more of the hit-hard or hit-home-hard lines. But even so, I mean, this entire movie, you can boil down to one memorable speech at the end, but it's all dialogue. It's all people in a room talking, and that's what he's known for, whether it was doing these early movies with this and the American president, or it was doing The West Wing or The Newsroom or any of these other shows. It's always people walking and talking, delivering great, meaningful dialogue that's pithy, but also seems to be a way in which people don't ever talk. Well, for that matter, even just the fact of how the screenplay was was pieced together for uh, being the Ricardos, uh, the J.K. Simmons role playing uh, William Frawley, he was constantly doing that. It was the when he would speak, it was always something poignant, and, and it it had some real punch to what he was saying and what it impacted the story. That's what made the role so good. I don't think he's necessarily the best director. He's now done three different entries of his own with directorial work. Trial of the Chicago 7, he did Molly's Game, which I thought was okay, and then the movie you just mentioned being The Ricardos. I don't think he's been nominated for Best Director yet. I know that he's been up for 
like a couple of Golden Globes and some different things for directing. But I think primarily he's known as a writer. And if there's any one screenplay writer that you know, it's likely Aaron Sorkin. His movies attract more attention when they come out than just about any other writer that I can think of. And kind of reminds me the way that certain names are attached and they by themselves bring about buzz. It's kind of like Christopher Nolan attached to any movie these days. The name Christopher Nolan will bring people into a theater in a way that almost no other name does. Yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying with that. And I'm uh, along that line, uh, another name that always seems to draw my interest, Oppenheimer. So put Nolan and Oppenheimer together. I'm anxiously awaiting that film. Well, and the other thing with certain directors, let's say for Christopher Nolan, Steven Spielberg or Tarantino, they seem to always get great casts together. And this movie is going to be no no exception. So my relationship to this, I honestly don't remember seeing this for the first time. I just remember it kind of always being in my life. I remember even some of our foreign exchange students, our, my brothers and sisters, having seen this movie. I think this is a translatable movie across culture. And I just know that I've seen this on cable or on a random station, I don't know how many different times. It actually was somewhat of a odd experience because you and I rented it on Apple TV. It was odd seeing this one not in the cleaned up version because I don't remember seeing the non-cleaned up version of this movie where Jack Nicholson is not as ruthless. I mean, th- there's an experience to watching Jack Nicholson be just that much more uncut, let's say that. <laughs> Yes. So uh, then I'll pose this to you. What is this movie really about? The issue of blindly following orders and whether you should or shouldn't, whether there's a requirement or, or a need to be critical sometimes of what you're responsible for doing. And when we get to the issue of novelty, This basically is Judgment at Nuremberg updated. I was (laughs) I was uh, actually just going to mention that. So that's a movie we're hoping to do in a couple of weeks as an entry if we can find a way to watch it. But I found it curious that one of the portions in this movie that I, I guess I hadn't noticed before until you kind of notice it is they actually mention Nuremberg in the course of this movie about halfway through. I think it's right around the hour mark. And actually actively compare these guys to, okay, if you're just blindly following orders, where does that fit on the spectrum of responsibility? And I think why this movie cuts across a lot of people's ethical dilemmas is the cross-section between what is the right thing to do versus doing your quote-unquote duty. There's a lot of tag words thrown around because it is the military. Honor, duty, code, courage. Things that we often hear associated with military personnel. Patriotism. And yet this movie really tries to poke a finger at, is there a difference between following the order and doing the right thing? Well, and I I mean, they... I believe it was Kevin Pollock's character, Weinberg. Yes, Lieutenant Weinberg. Specifically because of that last speech, you, Lieutenant Weinberg. Yes. 
that uh, he mentioned not just Nuremberg, but he mentioned Lieutenant Kelly and the uh, Milai massacre in Vietnam. And that was Kelly's argument in his trial for uh, murder and his court martial was, I was just following orders. That's why the perfect example often goes to the Nazis. Like, how do you put a concentration camp guard on trial? I think the officers and those in higher power, it's a much easier task to do, but that's why something like Judgment at Nuremberg becomes such a powerful film. Yeah. So, as we do every week, let's give some background on this movie before we get any further. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. After the death of a private at Guantanamo Bay, two Marines are charged with murder, and Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, Tom Cruise, is appointed to represent the two in their defense. Inclined to plea bargain, he's pushed by a lawyer from Internal Affairs, Commander Joanne Galloway, Demi Moore, to defend them at trial because she believes the two were ordered to perform a code red, a sometimes violent, a sometimes extrajudicial or military punishment, ordered by Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, Jack Nicholson. Assisted by Lieutenant Sam Weinberg, Kevin Pollack, and pitted against prosecutor Jack Ross, Kevin Bacon, Caffey and his legal team build a case that redefines the very meaning of honor, code, and duty. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Rob Reiner as director, Aaron Sorkin as writer, Tom Cruise as Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, Jack Nicholson as Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, Demi Moore as Lieutenant Commander Joanne Galloway, Kevin Bacon as Captain Jack Ross, Kiefer Sutherland as First Lieutenant Jonathan James Kendrick, Kevin Pollack as Lieutenant Sam Weinberg, Wolfgang Bodison as Lance Corporal Harold W. Dawson, James Marshall as Private First Class Loudon Downey, J.T. Walsh as Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Andrew Markinson, J.A. Preston as Judge Colonel Julius Alexander Randolph, Michael DiLorenzo as Private First Class William Santiago, Noah Wiley as Corporal Jeffrey Owen Barnes, and Cuba Gooding Jr. as Corporal Carl Edwards Hamaker. Recognition for this movie. A Few Good Men opened on December 11, 1992 in 1925 theaters. It grossed $15,517,468 in its opening weekend and was the number one film at the box office for the next three weeks. Overall, it grossed $141 million in the U.S. and $101.9 million internationally for a total of $243 million overall. A Few Good Men currently holds an 83% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and a 62% rating on Metacritic. The film was nominated for Best Picture, Supporting Actor for Jack Nicholson, Film Editing, and Sound Mixing. It lost the first three of these awards to Unforgiven. It has been recognized by the American Film Institute on the following lists. In 2003, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains, Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, nominated villain. 2005, AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes, Colonel Nathan Jessup, You Can't Handle the Truth, at number 29. And 2008, AFI's 10 Top 10 as the number 5 courtroom drama film. Did you know? The title for the play and film came from a long-running recruiting campaign for the U.S. Marine Corps. We're looking for a few good men. The campaign was slowly phased out through the 1980s with the well-known The Few, The Proud, The Marines. I had always wondered what the name of this was supposed to imply, so 
answers that question finally. Did you know? The original play was inspired by an actual Code Red at Guantanamo Bay. Lance Corporal David Cox and nine other enlisted men tied up a fellow Marine and severely beat him for snitching to the Naval Criminal Investigation Service. Investigative Service. Uh, NCIS, if anyone's wondering. Cox was acquitted and later honorably discharged. In 1994, David Cox mysteriously vanished, and his bullet-ridden body was found three months later. His murder remains unsolved. Did you know? Writer Aaron Sorkin got the story idea from his sister, who in real life experienced a very similar incident at Guantanamo from the Lieutenant Commander Galloway perspective as a female JAG attorney. In that incident, the victim was similarly assaulted by nine Marines and was badly injured, but did not die. Sorkin initially turned the idea into a play, and then this screenplay, which was his first. Did you know? A recent college graduate, Aaron Sorkin was working as a bartender at New York Broadway shows and wrote the entire play on cocktail napkins during Act One of La Cage au Follet. According to Sorkin, quote, You work during the walk-in and you work during intermission, but you're not doing anything during the first act, and there's an unlimited supply of cocktail napkins. Did you know? Joshua Molina is the only actor to reprise his role from the original Broadway production. Did you know? Aaron Sorkin makes a cameo appearance as a lawyer bragging in a tavern. Did you know? TriStar Pictures produced the film with Aaron Sorkin writing the screenplay adaptation of his play. TriStar executives instructed Sorkin to make several changes to the story, including a sex scene between Caffey and Galloway. An unnamed executive gave Aaron Sorkin a note. Quote, If Tom Cruise and Demi Moore aren't going to sleep with each other, why is Demi Moore a woman? He responded, I said the obvious answer. Women have purposes other than to sleep with Tom Cruise. He claims the incident was his worst experience as a screenwriter. As this was Sorkin's first screenplay, he did write that in, although he had strong reservations about doing so since this does not occur in the his play version. In Sorkin's words, quote, Nobody at TriStar was talking about a romance, by the way. We were just talking about these two people going to bed, end quote. When Rob Reiner came aboard to direct, he used his clout against the studio and told the young Aaron Sorkin to toss the screenplay and start over. Reiner, who had seen the play and loved it, felt adding in a sexual encounter added nothing to the story and was just a cheap Hollywood thrill tactic. Did you know? Aaron Sorkin said he enjoyed working for Reiner, even though the director ordered him to make countless rigorous revisions of his screenplay. One major revision, unlike in the play, where a doctored logbook is the smoking gun that gives Caffey the break he needs, Reiner insisted that Cruz's Caffey win the case on courtroom skills alone. Did you know? Wolfgang Bodison was working for Rob Reiner on the film as a location scout when Reiner decided he was perfect for the part of Lance Corporal Harold Dawson. Reiner said he looked like a Marine. Did you know? Jason Alexander was supposed to play Sam Weinberg, but when Seinfeld from 1989 was unexpectedly renewed, he was no longer available. Did you know? The Defense Department refused to endorse the film. This meant that the filmmakers couldn't utilize any military installations during filming. Most of it was shot on a Culver City soundstage. Did you know? Jack Nicholson was paid $5 million for 10 days' work on this film. Technically, he worked an extra morning for free when Rob Reiner and crew didn't get all of the footage shot in time. Nicholson later admitted that it was one of the few times the money was well spent. Did you know? Gene Hackman turned down the role of Colonel Nathan Jessup because he was busy playing Sheriff Little Bill Daggett in Clint Eastwood's masterpiece, Unforgiven. However, Heckman won the Oscar that competed with Jack Nicholson for Best Supporting Actor at the 1993 Oscars. Did you know? 
That same year, Jack Nicholson and J.T. Walsh also appeared in Hoffa from 1992 and became very good friends. When Nicholson won his third Oscar in 1997 for As Good As It Gets, he dedicated it to the memory of Walsh, who passed away months before the award. Did you know? Demi Moore reportedly agreed to negotiate her $3 million asking price down to $2 million because she was competing with Jodie Foster and Linda Hamilton for the role, and also because she badly needed another hit after the triple box office failure of The Butcher's Wife, Mortal Thoughts, and Nothing But Trouble. Did you know? It is the only Best Picture nominee that year not to win any Academy Awards. Did you know? Kevin Pollack's mother is in the crowd watching the trial. According to Pollack, she hit on Jack Nicholson. We'll take a quick break and we will be right back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right, Dad, who did you have as your best performer? I had uh, a, a tie. I had Aaron Sorkin and I had Rob Reiner. I know that everybody's going to likely remember Nicholson and his performance, but I thought Rob Reiner's directing was brilliant in this. It uh, had a great pace. It developed the characters. It had the right feel. Uh, everything about the directing and the way it was shot was wonderful. Sorkin's uh, dialogue uh, was spellbinding at times, and the overall character development in the play or screenplay itself was was wonderful. I think that the performances were drawn out by Rob Reiner, and I think that the uh, performances were the quality they were because of the writing of uh, in the in the screenplay. So it's funny that you mentioned both of them together. I think the best Aaron Sorkin movies on record have usually been when he paired up with a very talented director and was able to get the most out of the screenplay because if you know anything industry-wise from Aaron Sorkin, he is extremely fanatical about how you have to deliver his dialogue. If you are signing up for an Aaron Sorkin movie, you don't really act. You do what he says and deliver the lines exactly the way he tells you to deliver them, which is usually very fast-paced. It's very monologued. You have to do them in a certain pacing, and everything is quick edited together so that you have a lot of punch with how they're delivered and a lot of content in a very short amount of time. And I think a lot of the traits that were developed for how you see Aaron Sorkin movies, TV shows, etc., and what we know of Aaron Sorkin dialogue was developed by Rob Reiner in partnership with this. So by extension, I thought it was a little odd when you said initially that there was a tie, but it really does seem like one of the few times that there was a great marriage between writer and director that seemed to create almost everything that came after it. So it's an interesting point by you. But as I went along with this film, and originally I had my second best secondary person nominated as the top one, but the longer I watched the movie, I went with exactly where you think I would go. It's fucking Jack Nicholson. This is Pete Nicholson. Every time he's on screen, he just is the entire focus. He blocks out the sun with how absolutely amazing he is in this movie. I can't express how good Jack Nicholson is in this movie. He is outstanding. The way he's changing just his eyebrow ridges when he has that little moment at the end, you have to ask me nicely. I don't know if there's a better moment 
in acting than that. And I will place that even above the you can't handle the truth because that's delivered in such a way that he's got like a disgust for Caffey and you can tell it. And then he eases up immediately and he becomes the nice friendly guy that you've known for so long. And he's just able to come in and out of these different emotions so effortlessly, but seem so natural to somebody in his position. You can feel the contempt just radiating off of him. I just couldn't find a way not to give him best performer, even though it's a very limited role. He is easily one of the best villains ever in the history of cinema. And honestly, this might be the role that he's known best for. Yeah, I I understand your point, and I understand all of that. It's just that he had a lot to work with, and that's why I went with the way I did. I know if you watch some of the stories talking about how he filmed the scenes, what it was for him to be on set and just be so locked into his craft, everybody that was on set during the day notes that he did not take any breaks off because normally you'll do certain reaction shots. You had mentioned to this or this to me ahead of time as well, but everybody from Kevin Pollack to Kevin Bacon to Tom Cruise said him being in the room and being so locked in and available to deliver the dialogue perfectly time after time after time. I mean, if you ask industry people, nobody stays there to deliver the line so that the reaction shots are genuine. He did on this particular day and did it so well that it was done exactly the same way, exactly the same tonality every single time that the reactions are so genuine. It pays off that moment that if that moment does not pay off that that way exactly, this movie doesn't work nearly as well. And so I think, if anything, I'll give him Best Performer just for an A for effort, but also because it's Pete Nicholson He is one of the great actors of all time, and we have to give him some props when it's in probably his most notable role. Your best secondary, then? I had Nicholson. His ability to show range within a very narrow band is uncanny. You know, because Jessup is such a controlled individual, okay? He had to show his emotions, but he could never get his emotions too high. He could never get his emotions too low until the last scene when, and that's where Jessup lost it, when Kathy was able to get him to break his parameter, the way he controlled himself and everything around him within that very narrow spectrum. And once that happened, all hell broke loose. But to do that in that manner without it coming across as being monotone or unemotional was just completely uncanny. I think the most notable thing about the performances, and when you talk about a small range, he is just on the other side of cracking, and that's why he eventually does. It's why it's not even a remaining question for me. They talk about this in the next to the final I guess, trial day scene when they're trying to do the strategy. I think he wants to tell us he committed the code red or called for the code red. And you can see that he wants to crack. He wants to be able to live his truth and that he wants to be able to say, yeah, of course I did the code red because that's the thing that I needed to do in order to do the best job for the Marines. Because you want me on that wall, you need me on that wall. 
He is the guy defending American freedom, and this is how I do it. And so you shut up and say thank you. And so because he's able to straddle that line, you can see him on the breaking point how many different times during the course of the movie, even when they go to Cuba and he says he's relaxed and he's got the cigar in his mouth. Otherwise, he wouldn't say, you've got to ask me nicely. But it's that just that element of, you know, he is a firecracker just waiting to erupt. And if you push him just right, he's going to explode. That ability to be on the precipice is not something just anybody can do. But my best secondary was a guy I originally was going to nominate for best primary performance or best performer until it got knocked off by Nicholson just the longer I watched the movie. And it's partially because I compare it to all of his other filmography. There is a certain notion of Tom Cruise that we know in the modern day that is post Oprah's couch that is just a very different Tom Cruise. He is post being fired by Paramount. He is in this era where he's primarily only known for Mission Impossible movies. But this is peak stardom Tom Cruise when he was still getting nominated for Oscar stuff. His cocktail days, his born on the 4th of July days, his post-stardom on Top Gun days, where he was boyishly good-looking, he was a sex symbol, and he could pop up in a movie and be the brash, young son-of-a-bitch that he was from Top Gun and be able to be reckless and not really ever able to be held to accountability. This is the one movie where he seems to stand up to the challenge of responsibility presented before him. And I thought it was interesting that I think I read it was Roger Ebert's review kind of displays the parallel sides of what Top Gun is, his most famous movie role other than maybe Mission Impossible, versus this movie where in Top Gun, he's trying to outlive the memory of his dad and basically supersede him. In this movie, he's trying to live up to the ideal that his father placed before him and then surpass that. And so as a result of that, I think this is his most challenging role, but you also have to be able to put in, I think there's a reason that Rob Reiner specifically asked Sorkin to say it was based on his courtroom skills as opposed to the smoking gun of the logbook. And it's because Cruz could pull it off. Reiner somehow got that from him, knowing he had that ability all along. You believe by the end of the movie that he is one of the most talented defense attorneys possibly in America. And they sell it that well because of how he displays that final scene. I think that's in partnership with how effective Nicholson is and that he is able to get that moment out of Nicholson's character. But by the same token, he has to stand up and be equal to the challenge of how good Nicholson is in that scene for everything to work. And so I nominated Tom Cruise as my best second. Most charismatic for you. Tom Cruise. I mean, he was at that time the epitome of a movie star. He was young yet. He was good looking. Um, He didn't have a lot of the baggage of his multiple marriages and uh, some of the statements of Scientology and stuff. Eating placenta. Yeah. Which he says now was a joke, but I saw the interview and I wasn't so sure Uh, there was. I still not. But yes. So he just was Hollywood. Yeah, he was one of the biggest notable stars on the planet at this point, and it's in one of his most charismatic roles. He is the hero that stands up for justice and what is right. 
You often go out of your way to suggest unique and creative theories on what is most charismatic. So let me take a page out of your book and nominate Aaron Sorkin for his dialogue as the most charismatic. All right. Because often actors say, sometimes I just don't have to act because the screenplay is written so well. And I would love the opportunity. uh, I've heard many of them say this. I'd love the opportunity to say such and such as dialogue just falling out of my mouth. Often people will say, I would love the opportunity to have Aaron Sorkin's dialogue just coming as words out of my mouth. I'm just a conduit from him, from the page to the screen. And as such, as somebody who did theater and acting and loves this kind of dialogue, I think I would love the opportunity to ever have Aaron Sorkin's dialogue ever come out of my mouth. All right. All right, so then let's move to best scene. The nominees I have down. Galloway takes the case. Galloway meets Caffey. Transfer meeting. Breakfast in Cuba. Six months. Markinson finds Caffey. Cross-examination. Downey wasn't there. Markinson's demise. Final strategy session. The final trial day and verdict. Did I miss any? Well, are you tying in the drunk... Tom Cruise scene. I have that as final strategy session in order to try and minimize the amount of scenes that this movie has. Cause it's going through so many different quick cuts and different things. I had to probably combine several different scenes into one thing. I think that's more of a sequence than a particular scene, but yes, I do have that as what I deemed final strategy session because you have to go from everything from him being drunk through that whole speech up through the point where he goes after Galloway in the rain. Well, I, that would be the only separate one I had, is I just had it bifurcated, but that's fine. Okay. What do you think out of those is the best scene, then? The pacing, the drama, the dialogue, the way it's shot. It's the courtroom scene by far is the best scene. Now, by courtroom scene, I'm thinking you're meaning the final trial day as opposed to all the cross-examination before that, because there are several other scenes that are involved. It's Jessup on the stand. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think there's really any other way to go for best scene. It's my favorite scene. It's also the most indelible moment, although I have more specifically the most indelible moment being the one line that everybody knows from this movie, and even if they don't know of this movie or that it's from a movie, they know the fucking line, you can't handle the truth. That thing is repeated until the end of time now. And I don't know, there, there's nothing more indelible. There may not be a more indelible moment or line delivered in movie history. And I'm, I'm serious about that. My favorite scene actually is not the courtroom scene. Okay, I went with, and the reason I made the distinction is is the drunk Tom Cruise scene. Every lawyer at some point in their career has to make a decision on the direction they're going to go with their career. They're either going to play it safe or they're going to be the bastard who takes the risks and does the stuff that um, is on the edge, that tap dances around the legalities, constantly in a courtroom, being close to contempt. Okay, so let me actually break this into three different roles. There is the plea bargain attorney, which he is at the beginning. 
There's the attorney who pushes the rules as he is in about the middle of the film. And then there is the lost cause attorney, which is him with Jessup on the stand. I think there are three different versions of that. But it's not the lost cause because at the moment he decides he's going to take the plunge, it's not a lost cause anymore. Isn't it? I mean, he's taking every reckless risk in the book in order to do that, and he pushes past it. It is exactly what I've said. It's the two that the last two you have are one and the same. It's just an element of the degree one is willing to go. And I've said, I said I've, I've used this comment all the time. There are two types of lawyers. There are the lawyer that tells you what the law is, and then there's the lawyer who tells you how to get around it. I've always made a career out of being the latter because read a book. You'll, that'll tell you the law. You're not a lawyer unless you're able to try to manipulate it for the benefit of your client. And that's ultimately what he decided to do. Fair point. Did you have a different indelible moment? No. The courtroom is the most indelible because the monologue itself, everybody can uh, repeat certain uh, lines from that. You need me on that wall. Exactly. So before we get to best lines, because obviously you know they're coming and we're going to do some dramatic readings of some pithy Aaron Sorkin dialogue. Let's take a quick break and we'll do in memoriam just afterwards. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, before we get to best funniest lines, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we do. We have a industry giant who is somebody that most people don't even know they're his name, Robert Morris. Uh, Robert Morris uh, is best known to the more recent generations as Bertram Cooper from Mad Men. Robert Morris uh, had a long and a very uh, prominent career, predominantly on Broadway. He uh, originally won a Tony in 1961 for How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. He did the movie adaptation in 67. His career was uh, in films was more stunted because he was constantly up for roles with Jack Nickel, or uh, excuse me, Jack Lemon. And Lemon would always get it because he was the more well-known and more prominent uh, actor at the time. But they were very similar in persona, and they had the boyish look, and they had a, just a certain knack of how they portrayed different characters that was very similar. So he did a ton on Broadway and was a longtime Broadway actor. Uh, his last performance was a redo of the uh, front page with Nathan Lane and John Slattery. Uh, he did that in, uh, I think he was like 83 or 84 and was doing six performances a week, did for several months. So he obviously remained in good health and uh, very active to the later part of his life. Very fine actor. I think, uh, again, people didn't necessarily know him as well as they should have uh, because of just the sheer level of his craft and how good he really was as an actor. Yeah, I don't know what the amount of people that watched Mad Men was. I know that there were a lot of people that finally kind of got around to seeing it during the pandemic. It has to be one of the most well-written shows that I've ever seen. I still think it's probably one of the best written pilots I've ever seen. 
And especially the first four seasons are great, but he has a moment at the end of season one. I won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but if you know, or excuse me, if you've seen the show, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He has a particular moment that I think defines his character in that show and really hits home what kind of character he seemed to always portray on that show that I found to be engaging. In a way, he surprised me as a character immensely in that moment. But there's also kind of an odd send-off to him in that show. It wasn't his final appearance on screen, but there's a season finale. I think it's the second to last season, and you pointed this out to me when we saw it together, I'm pretty sure that there's a moment before Don takes a leave of absence for the last season where he does a song and dance number that I think is part of a fever dream, if I remember correctly. It's been several years since I've seen the show. But that really showed off how capable he was as a performer in Broadway as far as musicals and showed that side of himself where somebody like me, I'm only familiar with him being on this particular show, but really showed his range and what he was capable of in a way that I'd never seen him or I had access to seeing him. So I remember him very fondly from the show. I always thought he was kind of the omnipotent and omniscient father figure of the show in a way that John Slattery never was. It, it kind of offsets the two of them, one being very unzen and unethical, whereas Cooper is much more of the ethical Eastern philosophy backing guy who can sit above it and make much more wise decisions because he has that experience and he isn't as rash as Sterling is. So by extension, they kind of play a a weird dichotomy in that show as to what kind of figure you can be in your older age. And I always found his character very likable, affable, and one of the better parts of that show. So I unfortunately will miss him, but we will always have his performance in that show. I really should go back at one time or another, except there's so much TV on to watch otherwise, but rewatch Mad Men once and uh, just get another appreciation for his character. He will be missed. And so we give him a moment of silence here in recognition of the endless amount of things that he's contributed to the industry. Thank you. Best funniest lines. Lieutenant Weinberg. Commander Galloway. Lieutenant Caffey is considered to be the best litigator in our office. He successfully plea bargained 44 cases in nine months. One more and I get a set of steak knives. Uh, Lieutenant Weinberg. I strenuously object? Is that how it works? Huh? Huh? Objection. Overruled. Oh, no, no, no. No. I strenuously object. Oh, well, if you strenuously object, then I should take some time to reconsider. Colonel Jessup, I run my unit how I run my unit. You want to investigate me? Roll the dice and take your chances. I eat breakfast 300 yards from 4,000 Cubans who are well-trained to kill me. So don't think for one second you could come down here, flash a badge, and make me nervous. Jessup, I'm going to rip the eyes out of your head and piss in your dead skull. You fucked with the wrong Marine. Caffey, oh, ha, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting. You were sick the day they taught law at law school. (laughs) You know the number of times I've used that line? Oh my God, I've used that line so much because... There are so many lawyers I've known who I just go, 
Yeah, obviously he was or she was sick the day they taught law in law school. I can't believe you haven't used the line galactically stupid more often, especially in the amount of boards and town councils and things that you've been a part of. I actually should. Now that you mention it, I'll have to keep that in mind because, yeah, because uh, there are a number. Go ahead. Kathy, maybe if we work at it, we can get Dawson charged with the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, I love that one. Galloway, you put him on the stand and you get it from him. Oh, we get it from him? Yes, no problem. We just get it from him. Colonel Jessup, isn't it true that you ordered the co-red on Santiago? Listen, we're all a little... Eh, I'm sorry, your time's run out. What do we have for the losers, Judge? Well, for our defendants, it's a lifetime at exotic Fort Leavenworth. And for defense counsel, Caffey, that's right, it's a court-martial. Yes, Johnny, after falsely accusing a highly decorated Marine officer of conspiracy and perjury, Lieutenant Caffey will have a long and prosperous career teaching typewriter maintenance at the Rocco Globo School for Women. Thank you for playing. Should we or should we not follow the advice... Of the galactically stupid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did I deliver that effectively? Yes. You didn't do it quite the level of sarcasm that Cruz did at the end there. but well, I had to tone it down for the listening audience because the audio yeah. may have uh, had some bad feedback there. Yeah. Okay. Do you have anything left outside of the big speech? Or Caffey, you don't need to wear a patch on your arm to have honor. Dawson, ten hut. There's an officer on deck. Any others yet? Nope. All right. We're going to attempt something that we've never done on the history of the show. We're actually going to do a dramatic reading of one of the big speeches and moments from a movie. In the role of Lieutenant Daniel Caffey, Dana Duncan. In the role of Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, Thomas Duncan. And scene. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled to. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's gonna do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you could possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. That Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places that you don't talk about at parties, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you were entitled to. Did you order the code red? I did the job I... Did you order the code red? You're goddamn right I did! And scene. <laughs> uh, well, I hope that plays better in the in the post than us just yelling into microphones, but... Yes, I hope so too.
And every time we I now end scene with the the hand drawing down, I just always think of Barry and how incredibly stupid that looks. All right. Let's go to the Stanley rubric then. I don't think we can top that moment. No. Legacy is up first. Go ahead. Industry. Uh, 4.5. The only reason I didn't give it a 5 is because it was nominated for everything and won nothing, basically. And uh, so I couldn't give it a full 5 for that reason. Uh, I think in any other year, it would have probably done a lot better than it did, but uh, it is what it is. For the public, it's a 5. I mean, this is a 30-year-old movie, and you can quote lines from this, and people will go, oh, yeah, uh, um, they might struggle with the name, but they'll go the Nicholson film with Tom Cruise. They remember the film. It's it's become, I think, the popularity, or at least certain the certain caricature of this film have become bigger than when it was released. So you mentioned the Oscars, and this being the only movie from the Best Picture nominees that did not win a single Oscar. It was just nominated. So Unforgiven, I think, is the the creme de la creme for most people of this year. I don't know how many people would necessarily put this movie above it. Maybe a little bit in hindsight, kind of how in the moment we thought that Forrest Gump was a better movie than Pulp Fiction or Shawshank Redemption, which I think now, after the fact, most people put those two movies ahead of it. This one, I think you'd have a harder time finding too many people that would say, this is a better movie than Unforgiven. But this might be an underrated movie year. You also had The Crying Game that was nominated for it. Mm-hmm. Yes, you had Scent of a Woman, which I think comically <laughs> is the movie that uh, most people say wow. is the, yes, the makeup award for Al Pacino. The fact that he won his Oscar for Scent of a Woman as opposed to the numerous other great acting roles that he's had in his career seems laughable, but it still was part of this. But other movies that were not a part of the uh, Best Picture race, per se, Malcolm X, possibly one of the crowning, defining roles of Denzel Washington's career, and for that matter, Spike Lee's. You also had Robert Downey Jr. and Chaplin. Mm. You know, there were several other movies that were competing, and yet, I think, from a star's perspective... Tom Cruise, at the height of his popularity and stardom, after he'd been nominated a couple of times in this movie, playing across from one of the other preeminent actors of all time, even in a supporting role, probably giving his most notable performance. And so, as such, I agree with you. From a 4.5, I think it's only fallen in the industry from a perspective only because I don't think it's held as one of the seminal great works And so that works a little bit against it. I think it's also held against it that it was Tom Cruise starring and his star power has clearly lost some shine post Oprah's couch. I mean, there's really no way of getting around that. And yet this movie might be talked about more than any other movie from the 90s. The amount of media people that ask Jack Nicholson, well, not anymore because I think he's in retirement and not capable of doing a lot of interviews, but if you had an interview with Tom Cruise that didn't result in some weird Scientology rant, Kevin Pollack, Kevin Bacon, the amount of other people that were in this movie and they're asked about it, this is one of the first things they are asked about. So this movie clearly has a lot of importance. When you're talking about cable movies, other than maybe Shawshank Redemption, this is probably the next biggest cable movie of the 90s, 
of this Castle Rock run that everybody's probably seen this movie. I mean, I made the joke last week that, oh, this might be have been a movie you saw on cable once. Because pretty much everybody in America in the 90s and early 2000s probably saw this movie because it was on cable every freaking weekend. And even now, it's on AMC+. Plus. So even if I take the half point off, it's only because it's judged against other movies that are worthy of the five in the industry. And this is just not Casablanca. It's not Citizen Kane. It's not Lawrence of Arabia. It's not The Godfather. But from a audience perspective, it's probably in that category. The amount of people that have seen this, the notable quotable lines, the performances that you have. I mean, realistically, we didn't probably have to give you the portrayal of the Jessup delivery of that entire speech because you probably know it by heart if you like movies. I had to give it a five on your recommendation as well, so we end up at the same score of a 9.5. Would you like to do the math? I think it's 9.5. Do you want want to pause? I can get a calculator. You can't do it on your toes? I don't have half a toe. I wasn't aware of that. All right, impact significance. Uh, industry 4.5 again, and it's pretty much the same way as Legacy. I I think it was well-regarded and well-received with the industry, and I think it propelled uh, Sorkin's career tremendously within that span because it was right after this that he and Rob Reiner did The American President, and then Sorkin transitioned into television and did West Wing. So I think that was all within that initial period. From the public, having lived through this time frame, this was not a film that people talked about a lot. And I forgot to check the box office draw, how well it did at the box office on initial release. It was number one for three weeks. It made 141 in the U.S. and 109 or 110.9 overseas. So like a 200 and some, I have it in the notes here, but okay. Uh, so it did It did do very well at the box office, which is what I thought. But it wasn't one that, it, you know, it was like, oh, my God, I have to go see this, which apparently is, for your generation, every Marvel film. Okay, it wasn't Forrest Gump. It wasn't Jurassic Park. But it's like in that next category where it was a very popular movie, but it wasn't like the top, top movies. Yep. So I actually, I went with a 4.5 for the industry, but I went with a four for the public because I think it's actually picked up and its notoriety and its popularity as time has gone uh, by more than within the first three years that we generally have for impact and significance. And I think it's because of cable. I would agree. I think the cable part of this actually enhances the audience portion of this and I would also agree that there was a lot of viewership for this movie, but it wasn't necessarily that it was the peak of movies. So I would be tempted to actually go with a 4.5 in that realm because there was an audience for this movie. I think the audience being drawn to it more often than not kept it alive. I think if it were to take any shine off the apple at all, it's that the critics thought it was good, but they never thought it was great. I think this movie lives more in an audience standpoint than it does as like an all-time great because of the cable background than it does necessarily as a industry-loved movie. 
I think this one isn't quite as artsy at times as everybody would like to, to believe in, so it has much more broad appeal to a more general audience than it does necessarily in the critics. There are very few things that they both overlap and e- both of them equally like. I'm not saying that the industry does not like this movie. It does, just not as much probably as the broad public. Now, maybe that has more to do with legacy than impact significance, but I'm going to give the industry a five, and I think it has to do more with the people that were involved and went on to do other things. Kevin Pollack has basically made a career from being in this movie. Aaron Sorkin has a career because of this movie. He goes on to do, as you mentioned, The American President with, I think... uh, Within three years after this movie, he does it again with Rob Reiner. And while Rob Reiner's career basically tailed off after that, and he didn't really do a lot of other projects, probably one of the few people that didn't have like some type of big moment after this, it's again part of peak Rob Reiner and his big run of movies. He did not make a lot of flops. You also had it during peak Nicholson. You had it during peak Tom Cruise. I mean, realistically, you also had it during peak Demi Moore stardom, area of time. And so you talk about all the rays of light that you love to make as your uh, analogy to everything, that all of these intersecting people making this the best possible movie at the same time, Aaron Sorkin having the chance to write the script for Rob Reiner begets the American president that begets the West Wing. Tom Cruise goes on to have multiple other roles, but this is the role outside of maybe Mission Impossible and Top Gun that he's known for. You say three things or three movies that Tom Cruise has been a part of. This does not make it past like the fifth guest that people have. You talk about Nicholson movies. Again, this is probably his most notable role. So I'm going to go with a five on that and a 4.5 for a 9.5. And you had an 8.5? Yes, 8.5. Um, and one thing I will point out, one of the reasons, the biggest criticism of this film for critics was its predictability. But once it's been on cable and you're watching it a second time, the public doesn't care about its predictability because you've seen the film. It doesn't matter at that point. The glorious part about this movie is it's so rewatchable because it doesn't matter what the ending is. You know it's always going to end in that same vein, but it's the performances, it's what the line delivery is, it's everything else about this movie other than you know, whether it's a predictable plot. I, I really don't think that matters past the first viewing. And most people, have, if you've seen this movie once, you've probably seen it three times. Novelty. This was probably my lowest category. I went with an 8.5. And it's predominantly because it had been done to some extent, which is, I, I mentioned Judgment at Nuremberg. Next week we do the Keen Mutiny. And again, it's, Action of or taking action and the whole concept of following orders or not following orders, and that is that permeates through the military. So, this isn't fresh territory, but the packaging was really good, and how well it was done was. So, I went with an 8.5 for that reason. So, I think that I would be tempted to say that this plays out like most courtroom drama movies. I know that we're doing a very unique niche of movies or niche, if you will, this month with military courtroom dramas. And automatically I say that phrase, and this is probably the movie you're thinking of. But you could easily compare this to the numerous other courtroom TV shows, whether 
reality TV with Judge Judy or not, or, I don't know, Law and Order or the numerous other L.A. Law or whatever else that's been on TV forever and ever and ever, okay? So I think from a courtroom standpoint, this does not seem novel. And yet, this is one of the few times that you can easily point to something that's from a military background. I think this movie is partly responsible for the TV show JAG, as well as the, I guess, possibly biggest TV show on, or scripted TV show on, NCIS, having as much backing as it is. I think it's a combination of different things for NCIS, at least. But how many other things are you taking the subject material of this movie into question? How many times are we really questioning patriotism, honor, duty, code, loyalty, following orders versus doing the right thing? I think that's what makes this novel, and as well as the execution that you mentioned. I have often given extra points for novelty for something being performed well or above standard. And so by that standpoint, I'm going to give this a nine. Okay. So the last category I forgot to give the average, that was a nine between us. And uh, this category then would be an 8.75 average between us. Classicness. (laughs) This one I had a difficult time with because it seems like it should be really good. I mean, we have an African-American judge. We have a a primary character who's female. We have diversity throughout the cast. Everything about this seems good, except this is where I'm going to give it a few points down. Number one, the female lead, Demi Moore, is not considered throughout this as being very good at her job or her career. She kind of minimizes her, makes her look a little bit like a bubblehead. The second thing that I would point out is, is as much as I love Kevin Pollack, and I've loved most of what he's done, whether it be from the whole nine yards to uh, grumpy old men, he's playing the part of a traditional Jewish lawyer. He is there basically because he's really good at the technical aspects, and it kind of makes... It, it it kind of almost is implied that he, I don't know how to phrase this without being, I don't want to be offensive or I don't want to be jaded, but I, I, I think it kind of minimized him because of his background, being Jewish. His character's only responsibility is to handhold Tom Cruise's character. Correct. So he's not allowed to do anything of a substance. He's there to basically rein in Tom Cruise. He's the assistant basketball coach in college who's pulling the head coach back off the court when he's charging at the referee. That's his role. And I think that it kind of, I had a little bit of a problem with that because I was trying to think critically about this. So I went with with a nine simply because of that. And the other aspect of classicness we'll get to in more remaining questions, and that is the major flaw in this movie. Okay, so you're going to go to the legal portion of things. Yes, and I have to take into account classicness because when you have such a fundamental flaw in law, what they, I think, to some extent were counting on was the fact that even lawyers, I myself, had to look it up because I'm going... Something doesn't seem right here, but I'm not a military lawyer, so I don't know military law, so I had to look it up myself. And the simple fact is is that 
Cruz could not be held or charged or court-martialed for being critical of Jessup. It's not under law allowed, even in the military. He could very well. In fact, he would have likely been court-martialed if he had evidence or reason, reasonable belief that Jessup was lying to not criticize and charge him in court. But that's creative license as far as I'm concerned. I understand, but I can't, I gotta, as a lawyer, I can't give it a complete classicness when it's such a fundamental flaw in the, 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 the script itself. I know it's a movie we haven't gotten to, but in comparison to the fundamental flaw of anatomy for a murder. <laughs> yeah. Like how, how big of a deal is this to you comparatively? It's getting a half point down because of the portrayal of the female and the Jewish lawyers. And then it's giving a half a point down for the fundamental flaw legally. Okay. And there's other flaws in anatomy of a murder besides the big one. Also legally. Like what lawyer ever does anything without collecting a fee up front? Fair enough. So I'm going to try and take some of your points and narrow them down. I take to heart your point on Galloway, because I do think that this somehow treats her in a stereotypical way that you would see a woman in a male-dominated industry or profession dressed down. It's not that they put her in a position where she constantly looks naive, although she does look unprepared, and it's written in a way that she clearly is from internal affairs as opposed to an actual trial attorney. And that somewhat comes out, but you have to really be paying attention. It's more of the fact that her two co-counsels often seem to have absolutely no problem, and she takes no issue with them constantly dressing her down. I mean, we talked about the line, I'm sorry, you were sick at the day they taught law in law school. And that's only one of like six different comments that they have. Or the fact that in the opening scene where she's involved, Commander Galloway, I think you need to get a cup of coffee. Oh, I'm good. No, you need to leave the room so we can talk about you behind your back. I mean, just that, you're already setting up what the character is. Now, you could say some of that's come to honestly, but I could see where you could easily take a half point off for that because it's not projecting strength out of a female character where I think in a modern sense that character is less hollow and they probably pass around some of those flaws to multiple people instead of just projecting it on one. Where I take issue is your characterization of Lieutenant Weinberg, because I don't agree at all. I actually find him to be, one, a subject of a writer's trick, but by extension, I'll explain here, actually somewhat of Lieutenant Caffey's conscience. So often when Lieutenant Caffey is thinking out loud, you don't have a narrator to bounce things off in and have the internal conversation that Caffey is having in himself. So he needs an outward projection to have the conversations he would just normally be thinking about. You're not having the conversation where they have it near the end of the strategy session at the end of the movie where you should have seen yourself. And I wish your father could have seen you. Because if I had to pick between you and your father as a trial attorney, I'd pick you every day of the week and twice on Sunday. That's a conversation that you would normally have maybe with a friend, but most of those conversations where it's back and forth or the, uh, I think it was the line delivered, you think they're guilty, don't you? 
I believe their story entirely, and I think they're guilty and they're going away to prison. Those are conversations that you have to project in a writer's sense in a way that makes or that you can't otherwise have. If like this was a different delivered medium, that would not be a part of the script. And yet, because you have to have that, I think he plays a very important role in this movie because you're constantly having Caffey try to talk out loud, think through his decisions, and you're reasoning with the audience. And so while his character is there as somewhat of a prop, he's an important prop to be able to allow us that access to the title character, or the main character in this case. Where I would take a half point additionally off, and I have to ask you this question, all right? Are we doing the cable version of Luke, or of Colonel Jessup, or are we doing the non-cleaned-up, uncut version of uh, Colonel Jessup? Because I think that makes a half-point difference. If we're doing the Apple version, there are a lot of offensive things that he says in this movie, yet I find are authentic to Marines from my experience hanging out with Marines and how they talk, versus you know, some things that could be deemed offensive. So you've got to straddle a little bit of line. I personally think it's the theatrical release that's the one that you consider. And I saw it the raw way. And I did not take down on it simply because you have to take sometimes the classicness within the context of where it is. And so that's why, I mean, I know for a fact, I also know for a fact from that time frame having lived it. So I think the raw version is the one that we use. I think we've had a grand conversation for a long time, but exemplified in this movie over who owns patriotism. Is it the stringent duty first America first type Colonel Jessup who kind of represents a certain portion of America? Or is it Lieutenant Caffey that says you have to think beyond what the circumstances are to know what in your heart is actually right. And I think the the switch of the two is classic to the argument we've been having since this movie. Well, we were having it before, but still, since this movie, that makes this somewhat classic as an American story. I also think it's more universal than just America, but it is about Americans. You want to talk about the diversity, two other things that you forgot to mention. Kiefer Sutherland's character is from the South, which they mention offhandedly. You have a Jewish lawyer, you have a female lawyer, you have the white working or white upper class guy of privilege that went to Harvard. You have a farm boy from Iowa as one of the defendants. You have a black man as one of the defendants. You have a black judge. I mean, there are a lot of different diversity cases in this movie, just about the point where diversity started to matter. And while you could probably throw in just about anybody into this role that Tom Cruise had and make it more diversified in a modern sense, it still holds up somewhat. And so I think from a diversity standpoint, it might get a plus because this was just on the cusp of where those things were starting to really fray out. And they should get a little bit of bonus points for trying to have an outgoing cast that seemed more authentic. And then finally, the last point of it, I think that while I could easily not make an argument against somebody who says that the uncut version of Jessup probably should take off points, the authenticity that I get from his projection of a Marine, it seems at least, again, anecdotally to me, from every Marine person from college that I hung around with, 
from my brother-in-law who is an ex-Marine. Basically, you are around any of these guys. This seems exactly the way they would talk or the way that they function or the way that they believe in honor, code, respect, loyalty, all of the buzzwords that are thrown around in this movie. So to me, this gets an extra point for the authenticity portion of things. I just give it kind of a half point down for the Joanne Galloway one. So I'm going to end up at a 9.5. Okay. So then that's a 9.25 between us. Rewatchability. This is another one where I struggled. As fast paced as it is and as good as it is, I'm going to give it an 8.5 for rewatchability simply because this is my profession If I've had a really long day or long week, watching another uh, lawyer operate is not necessarily going to give me the macaroni and cheese feel uh, that I like to have in certain films. So I had to give it down. And that's more personal than anything. And I can understand that. But this is also the most subjective of any of our categories, as we've mentioned on multiple occasions. So for me, this is... For me, I'm going to give this a 9. I think it could easily make a case for being a 9.5. I really do enjoy this movie. It's not hard to like. I love the Sorkin dialogue. I think this is probably the movie I like of his the best as far as a dialogue standpoint and for the accomplishment made on it. I think it's the most significant of just about any of the people in the movie's careers. And it's on cable for a reason because people like it, enjoy it, and it can be easily digested multiple times over. I do find it a little slow in parts, but once you get to the courtroom scenes, the cross-examination, and back and forth, and just about every time either Nicholson or Tom Cruise is on screen, this is a highly engaging and watchable movie. So I'll go with a 9. That'll be an 8.75 average between us. For audience score, we had a 90% for Google users and an 89% for Rotten Tomato users for an 8.95. So overall, we had a 9.5 for Legacy, a 9 for Impact Significance, an 8.75 for Novelty, a 9.25 for Classicness, an 8.75 for Rewatchability, and 8.95 for audience score, making this movie a 54.2. And I don't know... If you would have thought this coming into this movie, but this now makes it the number three movie on our list. I would have had it possibly five or six. So it currently ranks in between 12 Angry Men at two and Saving Private Ryan just behind it at three. Mm. Okay. It's possible we were too high on this movie. It's possible. So we'll leave that open-ended for maybe a revisit at another time and place. I'm sure neither of us will have a problem revisiting this movie. But for now, 54.2 and uh, inside the top five comfortably. So the only remaining question I had left, why does Markinson kill himself? Because he's conflicted between his duty and honor of not uh, doing something to stop it, but by the same token then testifying against his commanding or superior officer. And so he can't handle the internal conflict of what he felt he uh, morally should have done versus his honor code that he did do. I suppose that explains it. And then in the same fashion, you could liken this to 
much in the same way if a general or soldier failed their duty in the Japanese army during World War II, they committed suicide. I could see that in a similar light, but it's always been something that didn't quite strike with me because he has the opportunity to stand up. So essentially what you're saying is in answering the question, even though he has the opportunity to stand up, it would still be a further dereliction of his duty to do that. And so because the end of his letter that he narrates before he shoots himself is I wasn't strong enough to stand up for your son this is his final act of I'm not strong enough to basically do the right thing. Correct. And not to mention he was probably crazy. Former special forces in Vietnam. I can't imagine what some of those guys went through in order to be that. Yeah. Well, when they say there is no Markinson, I could be Markinson and no one would know. Those things seem to ring somewhat true from what I've heard of, uh, Tales of Special Forces. Yes. So any remaining questions for you? Nope. I'm good. All right. Final thoughts for the week? Uh, none. Um, uh, well, other than the fact I'm looking forward to The Kane Mutiny. It's one of my favorite films. Good. I'm very glad. I know that uh, you and I enjoy courtroom dramas, even though, uh, as you've mentioned before, you've said on multiple occasions to me privately, not on the show, that you have a problem with Anytime a legal genre film or TV show is on because you're constantly navigating through the world of, is this or is this not realistic or authentic? And I'm sure that's the same way a doctor would, a medical TV show. Yes. So I'm sure it can't be as fun for you as it is for the rest of us that have no insider knowledge. <laughs> well, I, you know, <clears throat> I haven't done it in a long time. I mean, but for the first 17 years of my career, I was a trial lawyer. And so I have 150 juries. And so I can still, and as you're well aware, when you kids were small, I'm very good at cross-examination. Yes, I, I can verify that. Thankfully, I wasn't on the receiving end of a lot of those. But that being said, I was witness to quite a few of them. <laughs> so for my final thoughts, we're recording this before the episode one of season three premiere of Barry on HBO and having gone back because I don't think, gosh, I think the last season that was on was in 2019 and it's been three years since it was on. So I went back and started rewatching the shows and I'm partway into season two, but I forgot how good that show could be. And yes, some of it's a little bit bumbling and stumbling and there's a comedic angle to it and it's some very dark and black humor but God damn, does that show get into the soul of a character? And uh, I think it might be one of the best written shows that's on TV right now. So I'm very excited to see what happens, especially because from what I remember, I haven't gotten up to that point and I'm trying to re-catch up. So uh, when season three hits, I have a little bit more frame of reference. But if I remember correctly, it ended on a fairly big cliffhanger. And so I'm very excited to see how that turns out going into season three. And if we get anywhere near the level of writing, especially three years later on that show and the kind of capable acting performances by three characters that you and I love very much, uh, I'm very excited to see what's going to happen. So I will leave that small recommendation for everyone. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing our second entry in Military Courtroom Drama Month. The Kane Mutiny from 1954, 
directed by Edward Dimitrik, written by Stanley Roberts and Michael Blankfort, starring Humphrey Bogart, Jose Ferrer, Lee Marvin, and Fred McMurray. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 